Good evening. Thank you all for coming tonight, and a very warm welcome to our live stream guests as well. This, this evening's talk, talk is um, from Fred Vilbig, Leave No Soul Behind. I'll introduce Fred, but if we could first start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. We're so happy to have Fred Vilbig with us tonight. Fred was born in Dallas, the youngest of three sons, with a sister tagging along six years later. While considering his vocation, he attended the University of Dallas, earning a degree in the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas and studying Latin. While in college, Fred also spent a semester in Rome and traveled throughout Europe the following summer, even making it to Israel. After college, Fred attended St. Louis, Louis University Law School, where he earned his law degree. It was there that Fred met his wife, Diane, the answer to years of prayers. He and Diane have raised their 11 children, sending them to holiness in school. Fred is partner in a law firm in Clayton, where he practices estate and business planning and real estate law. For many years, he was president of the St. Thomas More Society, which is the Association of Catholic Lawyers here in the Archdiocese. He also has served on numerous local, regional, and national boards. In addition to his formal studies, Fred is extensively well-read on church history and lives and writings of the saints. He has been host and guest on EWTN radio, working with St. Joseph Evangelization Network in the St. Louis area. Fred has given numerous topics on religious events, and we are so very happy that he is here tonight with us to share with us, Leave No Soul Behind. Good evening. Thank you for coming. It's nice to see you here. Um, the, what I wanted to do was I wanted to kind of explain why I would have written a book like this. I'm a lawyer. You know, lawyers don't do things like that. And uh, in order to explain that, you need to know a little bit more about my history. Uh, as Terry said, I was born and raised in Dallas, uh, the youngest of three sons with uh, a sister coming along a little later. Um, I went to public school. I was not uh, grade school and high school, um, I did not go to Catholic school. Uh, at the time, we had CCD, the Confraternity of Christian Doctrine, and this was the post-Vatican II years. And so it was mainly about uh, relationships and, um, and that sort of thing. I don't know that we got that much doctrine to really learn about the, uh, to learn about the faith. Um, and for, for whatever reason, when I was a kid, I would watch, you know, the cop shows and somebody would get shot and die. And my wife says I'm a little odd about this, but I would wonder if they went to heaven or hell. 
And I, you know, I don't know why that was. My older brothers, um, they are not that terribly religious. That's kind of an understatement. And um, they, uh, one of whom I think is watching tonight. Um, anyway, uh, but they're not, you know, it, it wasn't something that was important to them. But to me, it was. By the grace of God, it was. And so what I did was I got involved in, they had Bible studies. Now, you have to understand, in Texas at that time, I was the only Catholic in my class, in my grade in high school, in uh, grade school and in high school. The closest Catholic to me was two years ahead of me. That was my brother David. I was surrounded by evangelicals. They were mainly Southern Baptists. Uh, there was a mixture of uh, Episcopalians and Methodists, but it was mainly Southern Baptists. And they kept telling me that I was going to go to hell because I was Catholic. And I, I didn't remember Father saying that at Mass on Sunday. You know, maybe I wasn't listening, but I don't remember him saying that. But I would go to their Bible studies. Uh, we, we had a, in, uh, in high school, they had a mid-morning break because high school is so, so demanding. Anyway, so we had a mid-morning break. And so there was a, a courtyard in the middle of the, uh, one of the wings of the school, and we'd go out there and sit. And they would be telling me, oh, the Bible says this and the Bible says that. And I kept thinking, you know, I'm not sure that doesn't sound quite right. And so what does every normal 15-year-old boy do? That's right, I read the Bible from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelations. So I, all of you did that as well, I'm sure. And, um, but I was also really struggling to figure out, you know, what is the true religion? And so I read books like, this is where I really go off the deep end. I read the Bhagavad Gita, which is Hindu scripture. <laughs> I see a head bobbing there. Um, I read the uh, Science of Health and Healing by Mary, Eddy, Mary Baker Eddy, I think it is, who um, is the uh, founder of Scientology. Uh, I read all kinds of Buddhist writings. Uh, I also read, um, I tried to read the Book of Mormon and the Koran. Uh, they were very difficult. I did not finish those, I will acknowledge that. Um, but after I went through this searching process, oh, and this must have driven my mother nuts because um, you know we would go to Mass on Sunday and then after Mass I would go with friends to you know, some uh, Methodist or Episcopalian or Baptist or they even have um, um, churches down there, independent churches down there that the Baptists were too liberal for them. And so I would go to their masses or their services as well. And I did a lot of searching. And it was about when I was 17 that I got to the point where I said, okay, I, um, I think I'm, I'm a Catholic because the Catholic Church is the true church. And so then I thought, well, what do I do with this, Lord? And in prayer, I said, what do I do with this? And so I thought, well, maybe I should look at that vocation thing. You know, they talk about that on weekends, you know. So I thought, well, okay, I, maybe I should look at a vocation and see if I have that. So at the time we were living in a Jesuit parish. Uh, the uh, pastor was a Father Bomarito from St. Louis. And I went to him and I said, Father, I, you know, I'm questioning, do I have a vocation? And I kind of told him, he said, go away. <laughs> I thought we had a vocation crisis even then. Anyway, he basically told me to go away. And so I had a friend from Austin, we lived in Austin for a little while, uh, Father uh, Charles Elmer. And Father Elmer uh, had shocked me the day that he was getting ready to leave. Uh, he'd been reassigned from Austin to Rome. He was going to be the treasurer. He laughed about this because he wasn't necessarily a, oh, I'm getting direction here. Um, I would, over example. Tell I do this a lot, can't you? Uh, anyway, so I, um, uh, I, I, Father Elmer, the day that he was getting ready to leave, I went back to the sacristy and I said, Father Elmer, you know, I'm so sorry, thank you. I really did enjoy the time that you were here. That was what I thought I was going to say to him. I walked in and he said, Oh, Fred, if you ever want to be a priest, get in touch with me. And I went, uh, uh, you know. 
So I wrote Father Elmer and I said, what do I do? And he put me in touch with a friend and I ended up uh, at Carroll College in Helena, Montana, which is a, had a seminary formation program. And I, I, after that, I took a year off because I was still trying to discern what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I realized that maybe God wasn't calling me to the priesthood. Um, uh, St. Thomas More, the famous martyr who had been the Lord Chancellor for Henry VIII until Henry VIII de decided he wanted to start divorcing people and beheading them. Beheading them. And St. Thomas More took exception to that and said, no, you really should. Actually, he didn't say anything. It's a very fascinating study if you, if you look at what he did. He never really spoke up and said anything. He just wouldn't sign the oath that Henry was saying everyone had to sign, saying that he was the head of the church in England. Anyway, so his vocation decision I can relate to. He said, it's better that I be a decent husband rather than a really bad priest. So that was the way that, the way that I decided that maybe I shouldn't be a priest. So I went to law school, I met my wife while we were dating. I asked her, I said, did you want to have kids? She said, yes. And I said, well, how many? And she said, well, I was thinking about six. And I said, oh, I was thinking about five. So we both got our wish with 11. <laughs> the problem is she gets to pick which six are hers. I'm, I really don't want to refer to the children I get as leftovers, but you have to wonder. So. We, we went and we had 11 kids, um, sent them all here to Holy Infant, uh, sent them to Catholic high school until I ran out of money. For those of you who have kids in Catholic school, you know it's expensive. Sent several of them to Catholic colleges. The end result of all of that is out of our kids, we have a few who are practicing their faith. And as you can imagine, in our house, with all of my background, you know, I've got a degree in the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas. I've been involved in Catholic radio. I've been involved in the parish. We were sending kids up here. They knew where we stood on the faith and we talked about it at home. We have, uh, there's uh, several of them that are kind of apathetic. If a religious topic comes up, I get an eye roll. Uh, and there are some that are actually um, openly hostile and it, Diane and I, my wife and I, have often wondered, what did we do wrong? It breaks our heart. We're not alone, I know. I know that there are a lot of people out there. We are fighting against very powerful forces in our society. Um, so I know that we're not alone. And I know that the problem is actually much bigger than just the families. The world is a mess. That's the one thing that everybody can agree on. Look around, you know, we have, uh, you know, rogue nations developing nuclear weapons. We have, you know, look at Washington, all the fighting that goes on there. Uh, the, um, the schools, uh, you know, we, we don't seem to be doing a good job educating children. Uh, you know, there are just a lot of problems and everybody agrees that the world is a mess. But then if you get to the point of saying, well, what's the cause? That's where the fighting starts. You know, some people say there's too much government funding. There's too much government out there. And other people say there's not enough. People say, well, we're not educating right. And people, other people say, well, we're doing the wrong thing in education here. There's not enough government this or whatever. The fighting goes on and on about what the cause is. And then you look at the solutions that the world offers. And the solutions that the world offers are, uh, they're, they've got, there's several different things that they'll, they'll try to do. The world will uh, offer, for instance, politics. You know, they'll say that you know, the way to solve all of our problems is through political uh, work. Well, as I said, Washington is a mess. Uh, Jeff City is a mess. Um, I was on uh, the uh, city council in uh, my city, Ellisville. Um, that does not work well. So, um, so you know, the, the problems, uh, the government is not the solution. Education, some people say that education is the solution. The problem is uh, there are some very smart people out there who are not very nice. I went to law school with some of them. And so, uh, you know, it, education in and of itself is not the solution. Um, 
There are other people who just kind of deny that anything is going wrong. They kind of like an ostrich, you know, they hide um, and they bury themselves in all kinds of distractions. Um, that isn't the solution either. Ignoring the problem is not going to solve the mess that we're in. So the, uh, the problem, I, I think the problem is not so much with the solutions that people offer, it's with us. The problem is that we are insufficient for our own happiness. That's why solitary confinement doesn't work. If we could make ourselves happy, we wouldn't need all of these things uh, uh, to go on to, to, uh, to fix the mess that we're in. So we are not sufficient for our own happiness. The, uh, and if you, if you look at it, the, the problem really is there is a, uh, um, I'm working with an editor on this book and she told me that I shouldn't include this section in the book, but it's one of my favorite kid books. Um, it's called The Missing Piece by Shel Silverstein. And Shel Silverstein talks about how there's this circle and there's a wedge missing. And the circle, all through the story, the circle is wandering around trying to find the piece that fits into that circle to make the circle complete. I always say it's a him, it could be a her. I, you know, you can't tell with a circle if it's a boy or a girl. And so it's missing a piece. All of us are missing a piece. That piece is God. The reason we're missing it is original sin. Because in original sin, we don't really under, you know, it's, it's a mystical thing, but it's as if the fabric of the universe was, was wrinkled or ripped or torn or something. And as a result of that, we can't find happiness in and of ourselves. And yet we try. Our society is very focused on me or you individually. Be all that you can be. Have it your way. It's the idea that you can make yourself happy. In our society, the idea is that if you fully fulfill all of your wants and desires, you will be happy. And I submit to you that you won't be. Look at the movie stars. They have everything that they could possibly want. Look at the millionaires. They have everything, billionaires rather, they have everything that they could possibly want. And yet so many times you read about how miserable their lives are and the drugs that pervade our society, the drugs that are out there, um, people trying to numb themselves from the sorrow that they feel. I think our society is failing. And the reason it's failing is because we've turned away from God. Because God is the only person who can fulfill and make uh, fulfill us and make us complete. He is that missing piece. Um, St. Catherine of Siena lived in the 1300s and she was a very interesting woman. Uh, if any of you are ever interested in reading about her, she, um, she lived in her uh, family home sort of as a, um, uh, in a cloistered kind of a setting and yet she had a very active correspondence with bishops and cardinals and even the Pope. She was lecturing them all the time. She was, you know, telling them, you know, you're not doing this right. And, um, and they listened to her. And she had, there's a famous um, book. She couldn't write, so she was illiterate. But she dictated her dialogues to a, uh, to a priest who wrote them all down. And so the dialogues of St. Catherine of Siena are fascinating because in it, she is relating her conversations with God. But one of the things that she said was, the world is poor. And what she meant by that is, there's not enough of anything in the world to fill that missing piece, to make you happy. More recently, there was a father, uh, Reginald Garagou Lagrange. Don't you like that name? How would you like to have to write that? You know, I'm making a reservation for dinner tonight. Um, anyway, Father Lagrange was the, uh, he taught in Rome at uh, one of the pontifical schools there uh, for years. And he wrote a, a book, um, I forgot to write it down, but he wrote a book um, 
and he talks about the immensity of the soul. That hole that's in our hearts is so immense that the world cannot fill it. It's only God that can fill it. And yet our society turns away from God. We reject God. We refuse uh, to acknowledge God even. So what do we, as faithful Catholics, as faithful Christians, what do we do? Well, you can't force people to believe. That doesn't work. We've never had any success with that. You really can't argue your way into belief. Yes, you need to be, like St. Peter tells us, you need to be ready to give a, um, a, a, an intelligent argument uh, explaining why it is that you believe what you believe. But you're not going to argue people into the faith unless they're already open to it. Um, there's a famous uh, uh, story in the Acts of the Apostles of uh, St. Paul when he went to Athens. Uh, he went there. His normal practice was he'd go into a town, he'd go to the synagogue, he would talk at the synagogue, they'd get mad at him, they'd stone him, they'd beat him, they'd throw him out. And so then he'd say, okay, I'm done with you. And then he would go and talk to the, uh, to the um, barbarians, <laughs> to the non-Jews, uh, the pagans. And he had, he had, in different towns, he had more or less success with them. But when he went to Athens, he thought, well, I'm going to, you know, these are, this is kind of the center of learning. Even, even though the Roman Empire was there, Athens was still sort of the academic center of the universe for the Roman Empire. And so he said, I'm going to go there and I'm going to make a good argument why people should believe in Jesus. And he went, and if you read, it's in the 17th chapter. It's in the 17th chapter of Acts. And the, um, yes. And what he did was he talked, he related things to their religion. They had a, uh, a um, shrine to an unknown God. And he said, the God that we're talking about is Jesus. And he rose from the dead. And anyway, it was a, it's a very good argument. The Athenians took him up to the Areopagus, which is sort of the, uh, it was where the, the town meetings would be held. Um, and so it took him to the Areopagus and said, tell us more, tell us more. And he went on and on and talked to him about it. And in the end, they said, you know, that's very interesting. We'll have to come back and hear more about this resurrection thing. Paul was so disheartened. He, he had not, he did make a few converts in Athens but almost none. He tried to reason with them. And when he left, he went to Corinth. And if you read his first letter to the Corinthians, he said, when I came to you, I did not use the reason of men. I talked about Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that was very effective. But you have to be ready. You can't, I don't think, you can really argue people into, I'm an attorney, I, I argue for a living. You can't argue people into, uh, into the faith. So what do you do? You know, we have people that are leaving the church. We have family members that are leaving the church. What do we do? If you read the saints, there are three, three ingredients. You pray, you live your faith, and you offer up sacrifices. So tonight, I want to talk about prayer on Tuesday night, I'm going to talk about living your faith and about sacrifice. So prayer is one of those things that uh, all the saints agree that prayer is essential. It's, it's one of the most important things. St. Alphonsus Liguori lived in Naples in the 1700s, about the time when the American Revolution happened. And the, we have sort of a um, rose-colored image of some of the writings that were coming out at that time out of what the period was called the Enlightenment. And so really the American Revolution was, to a certain extent, a part of the Enlightenment thought that was going on. There was a dark side to the Enlightenment. If you look at the French Revolution, the French Revolution, they came in and they instituted uh, the reign of terror. They brought in the guillotine. They, um, they marched priests and bishops. I hope this isn't 
too harsh for your daughter, okay? Um, they marched priests and bishops onto galleys in, uh, in, in, in harbors and left them there to die. Uh, the uh, Discalced Carmelite nuns of Compiègne, uh, they were marched out. First of all, the, all the convents were disbanded, and if you continue to practice your faith, they would, uh, they, there were government spies. They would find you, arrest you, and you'd probably be put to death. It's interesting that the, some people want to say that the French Revolution was uh, similar to the American Revolution, um, and yet um, the, at the Communist Revolution, Lenin, he played the Marseillaise. He played the, the song of the French Revolution. Uh, the first statue that they put up was, uh, uh, I want to say it was Montespierre, one of the leaders of the French Revolution. So really the French Revolution was more akin to the Russian Revolution. Um, and that was what the church in France was having to deal with, uh, basically being uh, persecuted. There's some fascinating stories of saints that came out of that period, but that's another story. That's another night. Um, but in Naples, Naples, Italy, was actually ruled by Spain at the time. And what happened was the king of Spain put in charge of Naples a man by the name of Bernard Tanucci, and he was an enlightened individual, and he wanted to suppress, although he's, he's kind of an interesting character because he actually did... Uh, have faith it's just he didn't want to have, he didn't want to emphasize it too much. and so he would suppress things as much as he could um, Alphonsus Liguori was born uh, in Naples a fairly wealthy family his father was a captain uh, his mother was very devout he ended up going to law school and was a very successful lawyer until he lost a case for purely political reasons we like to think that our judges are all fair and honest, and that's not always the case. And not if any judges are watching. <laughs> You're all wonderful. Um, anyway, uh, but in other places, <laughs> um, you'll, have, you'll have judges that are not on the up and up. And what happened was he lost a case because one of the judges uh, my understanding from a biography that I read about him was one of the judges was friends with the uh, opposing side and ruled against him even though the case, all the facts in the law were in his favor. He was terribly disillusioned by that. And so what he did was he decided that he was just going to leave the practice of law. He went to study to be a priest. And he, um, and back then they had a... Um, it was a vocation crisis, unlike what we have now. They had too many priests. What would happen is people would be ordained, a man would be ordained to the priesthood and hope that he would be appointed to a wealthy parish because the parish was required to give a certain amount of money to the bishop, but could keep the rest. And so at a wealthy parish, the pastors like Father Stanger, no, I'm just joking Father Stanger, um, the, uh, the pastors would actually get very wealthy under that system. That's why we don't have that system anymore. Well, they actually had priests that would graduate and wouldn't have a parish to go to, and they ended up on the streets committing crimes, and they actually got arrested. Well, Alphonsus, because his, uh, his family was, was comfortable, um, he had a place to go, so he went to live with his family and uh, started ministering to the people that were in the streets and he also ended up giving missions out in the countryside um, and was very shocked at the lack of religious faith that he encountered there but in all of this he's a doctor of the church and he's written any number of books um, he was very very severe with himself and yet he wrote a manual for uh, confessors which is very um, kind and gentle, which is kind of an interesting contrast. But he made the comment, all of that was back, backdrop to this comment, he made the comment that those who pray 
are certainly saved. Those who do not pray are certainly damned. So prayer is central. It's, it's the, one of the most important things that you can do. Um, but what is prayer? I always point out prayer is not magic. There's a story in the Old Testament about the Jews. They were fighting the Philistines. The Philistines were winning. And the Jews said, hey, we've got a good idea. Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it into battle, and surely we will win. So that night they run off, they get the Ark of the Covenant, they bring it back to the battle, they go into battle the next day, and they are utterly defeated. And the, and the Ark is taken by the Philistines. And they, they wonder, why is that? Why is it that they lost when they had God with them? They were using the Ark like a talisman, a good luck charm like a rabbit's foot. Prayer is not magic. Prayer is a relationship with a person who is God. And so that's what we need to focus on. Yes, we're going to go to God and say, God, I need to do well on my tests that I have coming up. Uh, I need to do well at work. Um, someone is sick. Please take care of them. Yes, we, we are always supposed to go. Those are prayers of petition always go to God. He already knows what you want anyway. He just wants you to give him a thought. So, yes, you do want to go and ask him uh, for help in things, but it's not magic. Magic is where we try to control the world around us, where we try to control the material world around us. Prayer is a relationship between you and a personal God who made himself manifest in Jesus Christ. So, it's a, a, my note here says, it's a direct and intimate relationship that he wants with each one of us. There are certain fundamentals of prayer, though, that you need to keep in mind. One, prayer takes time. If you have a relationship with somebody, it's going to take time to develop that relationship. You need, and they don't happen immediately. Um, you, you know, dating, I'll use that as an example. You know, you kind of, you know, shuffle around. Uh, I, I really don't have a good story to tell with that because my wife and I, we met, and a month later, I proposed to her, and she said, yes, what took you so long? She denies that, by the way, but I remember. And then we decided that we really couldn't tell anybody that because nobody would believe us. And so when we finally got around to telling our parents a couple of months later, um, they were very nonplussed. They were unimpressed because they already knew. <laughs> you know, so, so we didn't do that little dance. But usually, usually, we always tell, tell our kids, don't do that. That's a bad idea. Um, but usually, you know, you kind of notice somebody, you talk to them, you get friendly with them, you learn more about them. Well, it takes time in order to develop a relationship. And it's the same way with God. You need to take time to pray. You need to take, um, uh, oh, my mind just went blank. Um, you, the, the saint, he's uh, Grenoble, France. It'll come to me, I can't think of his name right now. Anyway, he said, and he's a doctor of the, um, LaSalle, Francis LaSalle, Francis, St. Francis LaSalle, is that right? Anyway, what he did, he said, you need to take 30 minutes a day praying, unless you're busy, and then you take an hour. That you need to pray, and that's central to whatever it is that you're doing. So prayer takes time. I also tried to impress on my kids that an important aspect of prayer is silence. You remember the story where um, Elijah uh, went and, and challenged the prophets of Baal and said, uh, let's, let's have our separate little altars and we'll sacrifice the bulls and let's have our gods bring down fire on the bulls. And the prophets of Baal, 400 of them, danced around and did all kinds of things. Nothing happened. And then uh, at the t evening when sacrifice was normally made, Elijah 
poured a bunch of water on this bull and you know, filled up all this stuff. Fire came down, burned it. Then he had all the prophets of Baal killed. Um, that did not make the queen of Israel, who was a big Baal supporter, uh, did not make her very happy. And so she sought his life. So he fled. First he went and he uh, slept under a broom tree and an angel appeared to him and gave him you know, water and some bread and said, eat this, you're going to need it for your journey. And he went back to sleep and he got up and you know, you know how that happens with the uh, God is very persistent. And so what he did was he walked 40 days to Mount Horeb, which is where uh, God appeared to Moses. And he goes up and he's in a cave hiding. And God says, I want you to go to the mouth of the cave and I'll come by. So Elijah goes to the mouth of the cave and he's sitting out there. You know, a firestorm goes by. God isn't in the firestorm. Earthquake goes by. God isn't in the earthquake. A windstorm goes by. A tornado goes by. You know, God isn't in the windstorm. And then a quiet whisper passes. And Elijah hides his head because he knows that God is in that quiet whisper. And that's what we need to listen for in the silence when we pray is that quiet whisper. I tell people that I, um, I know people who have, they do honestly, sincerely believe that they have had either God or an angel speak to them. I've never had that. Um, I, I experience more of a presence, a very quiet presence in my prayer. And I think many of us probably, that's the way that we experience God. Saint Faustina, who uh, the, divine, the uh, saint of divine mercy, she made the comment that silence is so powerful a language that it reaches to the very throne of the living God. And in a recent book called Don't Speak Ill of Others by a Father Emilian Antonucci, uh, the Pope recently issued, uh, wrote a foreword talking about how important silence is. And if you know who Cardinal Sarah is, Cardinal Sarah wrote a book on silence. Or actually, he didn't write the book. Uh, there's a guy that uh, interviewed him and wrote down the Cardinal's comments about silence and how important silence is in prayer. Prayer can also be very simple. It doesn't have to be very, very complicated. Um, John Vianney lived in the 1800s. Uh, he uh, late 1700s, 1800s. He grew up during the French Revolution. They used to have mass in neighbors that priests would have to sneak around because if they were caught, they'd be killed. And so they would sneak around and go from house to house to house to hide. And the, um, they would have mass. They would put you know, tarps up on the windows so that nobody would see that there were lights on inside and they would have masses at night. This was the faith that John Vianney's family had when he was a child. Well, he worked in a farm and never really learned, uh, didn't have a lot of learning. And, uh, and then when it was time for him to maybe go to school, he was drafted by Napoleon. That's another reason why the French Revolution was such a failure. You know, they went through all this trouble to have a revolution and get rid of, uh, to have a Republican form of government. And the only thing that saved him was Napoleon. He came in and declared himself an emperor and he went off for 15 years and you know, ravaged Europe. So anyway, so John Vianney, I, I had this issue with the French Revolution. So anyway, uh, John Vianney, uh, he, uh, was, he was drafted into Napoleon's army and was supposed to go down to fight in Spain. Well, he was, he was at prayer when he was supposed to leave and he was very sick. So his regiment moved out before he got there and then he tried to chase him down, but he, like I said, he was so sick, he fell further and further behind. And finally, a guy found him and said, hey, come with me. And it turns out he was a deserter and took him up into the mountains. And John Vianney hid in this little town in the mountains. And when the government agents would come, they would hide him in the hay so that he wouldn't get caught. And it was there that he decided that he should be a priest. So. After he, uh, Napoleon eventually uh, issued an amnesty for all of the deserters and, and draft dodgers. And so he went, John, uh, went to the seminary. The problem is, since he had never gone to school, he didn't know any Latin, 
And that's what they spoke in the seminary. All the classes were in Latin, your tests were in Latin, everything was in Latin. So since he didn't know the language, he didn't do so well. Who would have thought? So anyway, he, he, uh, he failed out, after, he bombed out after his first semester. He went back home and the parish priest, Father Bailey, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, B-A-I-L-E-Y. Um, anyway, Father Bailey took him under his wing, taught him enough Latin to get by, and he went back to the seminary and he completed all of his courses, but not very well. So when it was time for him to graduate, the, and this was, you know, the church had been devastated by the French Revolution, and so they were really looking for priests at that time. When it was time for him to graduate, they did the comprehensive exams, the oral exams that they did, and he was very nervous and tongue-tied and did a bad job. And so they said, we can't pass you. So he went back home and Father Bailey said, that's ridiculous. So he called the, uh, the examiners uh, to town and they did an examination of Jean in the rectory of the, uh, of the church there. And he was eloquent. He was profound. It was stunning. The, you know, the professors, they said, where did this all come from? They were surprised about how beautiful it was. But they said, you know, with his grades, we can't really... You know, what are we going to do? We're, we're, we can't really put him out there, you know, because we don't really know if he's any good. So they, what they did was they said, if you, Father Bailey, can find a bishop who's willing to ordain Sean, we'd be happy to, you know, go on and let him be ordained. And so because things were so desperate, they, and, and Father Bailey said, I'll keep him here and train him and work with him, um, so that it was sort of a a, uh, a fix him up kind of a case with uh, Jean Vianney. And so they ordained him and he stayed with Father Bailey for several years. And then eventually Father Bailey died. Well, then the bishop had the problem. What do you do with John Vianney? And uh, where is he gonna do the least amount of damage? And so they sent him off to Ars, France, which was this little bitty town in the middle of nowhere that had um, maybe 200 people living in it. And the French Revolution had destroyed the church, nobody was going to church. There was drinking and carousing and all that kind of stuff. And here comes John Vianney and he says, well, I, I don't think that's the way to go. Well, remember, John was a farmer and all these people were farmers. And so he'd go around and meet people and talk to them about farming. And he would slowly bring them into the church. And over time, the people were flocking to the church and he would have confessions. People would come from all over Europe to go to confession to him. Now, I think he had a very annoying trait in his uh, confessions because you'd say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. My last confession was you know, 20 years ago, whatever it was, you know, uh, uh, two months ago, um, and I did this, 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 and this. And Father Vianney would say, well, what about that time that you did this? Because he could read souls. He uh, would fight with the devil at night, literally, uh, they would hear noises coming from uh, the, rec from the uh, rectory. Um, there were all kinds of miracles attributed to him. Anyway, one day after Mass, just so you know who we're talking about here. So, one day after Mass, Father Vianney is leaving. He's you know, got his vestments off and he's heading over to the, um, to the confessional to start hearing confessions. And he would hear confessions for like 12 to 18 hours a day. Anyway, so he, would, he was heading over to the confessional. And uh, he noticed when he would do that that there was this old retired farmer that was sitting in a pew about midway back in the church. And he was there every day, just staring up at the crucifix. And one day, Father Vianney said, uh, Jacques, I don't know if that's his name. I just made that up. Anyway, Jacques, so what are you doing? He said, I'm praying, Father, really? Well, how do you pray? He said, well, sometimes I looks at him and sometimes he looks at me. Prayer can be that simple. So prayer doesn't have to be overly complicated. It can be simple, but it is work. So uh, I was reading uh, recently, uh, there was a woman who was talking about her prayer life and how hard it is to concentrate because we, we all get distracted. And she had this image that I thought was wonderful. She said her, her head is a tree full of monkeys. That's the way my head is. 
Anyway, um, St. Bernard of Clairvaux lived in the um, 1000s. He died in 1153. And uh, anyway, Bernard was a, um, a very interesting guy. He came from a fairly wealthy family, but he decided he was going to join the re a religious community, the Cistercians, uh, which is the University of Dallas where I went to. They had Cistercians there. And it was a reform of the Benedictine order. And the Cistercians, um, they wanted to live an austere life. So uh, Bernard decided he was going to join the Cistercians. And so he talked to some of his friends, and they all decided to join. So Bernard went to the monastery with himself and 30 friends, all to become Cistercian monks. So this guy, I don't know if he strong-armed him or what, but he, had a, he must have been very persuasive because he brought 30 people with him. And so soon after that, within a few years, they decided, well, it's kind of crowded here. And so they decided they were going to start a new, um, a, a new monastery, and Bernard was going to be the head of it. And it was in a fairly desolate valley, and it was called the Clear Valley, Clair Valley, which got in the, you know, the uh, dialect there, it became Clairvaux. So he's known as St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Anyway, so St. Bernard, he had a tremendous presence about him. And there were, at the time, you know, we have nations. Well, they had these city-states, and they'd all be fighting and everything. And so he was called on to try to settle these disputes. He was also brought in, the Pope brought him in. So he was a very um, powerful figure, personally uh, powerful. Um, Anyway, so one time he's going to meet with um, some people, some warring factions to settle things. And he's riding his horse down this path and he goes by this field where a peasant is in the field uh, farming. And the peasant looks up and, and scoffs, goes, ah. And St. Bernard stops and says, I'm sorry, what's wrong? And he says, well, look at you up on that horse riding along there while I'm down here busting my tail, tail end, working hard. All you have to do is pray. And he said, and St. Bernard said, he was not called St. Bernard at that point, but Bernard said, um, wait, you know, prayer is actually hard. You have to work at it. And he said, you don't have to work at it. I, that's easy. You just go and pray. And so Bernard said, here, I'll make you a bet. I, I will give you my horse if you can say one Our Father all the way through without getting distracted. And the guy said, oh, okay, yeah, I'll do that. So he started, he said, our Father who art in heaven. Wait, does a saddle come with that? Bernard kept his horse. So you, you have to work at prayer. It isn't easy, but you have to work at it. And it needs to be constant. You remember the story of there was a battle of the Israelites with the Philistines when Moses was still alive. And he goes up onto a mountain to pray and Joshua is down in the valley fighting. And while Moses has his arms up, uh, the Israelites have the better of the fight. But his arms get tired and he lowers them. And then the Philistines uh, get the better of the fight. And then Aaron and Hur come and hold his hands up. And uh, the, uh, uh, Joshua prevailed. The image there is, you know, you have to pray constantly. Uh, you, you really can't let it slip. It's got to be an everyday sort of a thing. Um, the, uh, there was a um, um, gentleman by the name of Nicholas Herman, born in 1614 in eastern France. He uh, came from a very poor family. When he was 18, he decided to join the military because in the military you got three meals a day and a place to sleep which at home he really wasn't getting. So he was in the military for several years. We don't know much about the military years. Uh, he, all we know is that he had a, um, uh, I, I, worldly-wise, you'd say he had a good time because he learned, he regretted it terribly. He spent the rest of his life doing penance over what he had done when he was in the military. And, um, it, and I, there are some things that were written about, you know, gambling and that sort of thing, but... You know, I'm sure that there was worse than that. Anyway, um, he had a conversion, and he ended up in a Discalced Carmelite monastery in Paris. 
and he took the name of Brother Lawrence. He went in and he thought, now he, he wasn't educated, and so he couldn't be a priest, but he thought that if he joined and he was accepted as a, as a brother, that he would be praying all the time, that he'd be in, in church, and it would be this wonderful experience. Well, he goes in, and they put him in the kitchen. And this is a large monastery, and so there's lots of cooking, lots of dishes to do, lots of work. And he was a little upset about that at first because he thought, you know, this really isn't what I signed up for, but I did make perpetual vows, so I'm kind of stuck here. But this isn't what I, was, I really signed up for. So he prayed about it, and it, he realized that God can be present anywhere, that even in the clamor of the kitchen, God was present. And he developed a very deep, profound prayer life in the midst of all the chaos of the kitchen. And people saw that in him, and they began writing him letters and asking him questions about their spiritual life. And so he would write back to them. And after he died, he probably would have been forgotten, except that the people of Paris were so moved by his writings that the prior of the, the head of the, the monastery collected these letters and wrote a, a, um, wrote a, um, a foreword uh, kind of explaining his reminiscence of, uh, of Brother Lawrence. And it's, it's, uh, it's a little book that you can get now. It's a short little book, uh, Practice in the Presence of God. But it talks about how you can pray. You don't need to have the perfect setting to pray. Um, I believe it was uh, John the 23rd who said that the only rosary, the only bad rosary is the one that you don't say. So even if your situation is not perfect, you should pray that that's important. Okay, um, prayer specific. So the, the, the general, the uh, fundamentals, you know, you need to take the time, you need to practice silence. Prayer can be simple, it's work, and it needs to be constant. There are several different uh, ways, the, on, uh, ways that you can pray, some specifics. One of the most simple ones, um, if you remember the parable of Jesus, that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector that went to the uh, synagogue, and the Pharisee was up there saying, Lord, here I am, I'm so wonderful, I'm so marvelous, at least I'm not like that tax collector in the back. And the tax collector said, uh, you know, I, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy, uh, I'm, you know, it's, uh, Lord have mercy on me. And Jesus said it was the prayer of the tax collector that was heard. And that developed the monks that, uh, the monachoi is the Greek word, uh, the monks that went out into the desert, the solitaries that went out into the desert early on, they read that and they said, that's the prayer we should be praying. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And they trust that that's the prayer that Jesus will hear. And it's called the Jesus Prayer. Uh, we also have the Father. When Jesus taught, uh, when the apostles went to Jesus and said, teach us how to pray, and he gave us the Our Father. It's a very simple prayer. There's seven petitions in it. Uh, St. Augustine wrote extensively. There's a letter to a, um, a, a, a woman who had escaped the sack of Rome. Her name is Proba. And there's a, a letter that he wrote to her where he talks about the Our Father. And in that letter he says, any prayer that you say is contained in the Our Father, is contained in those petitions, but if it's not, then it is not a valid prayer. That's how central he saw the Our Father as. The Hail Mary is a, uh, oh, I'm sorry. The, the, uh, one of the questions that I had was, in the Bible, in the New Testament, you'll see things where it says, Jesus got up early in the morning and he went out to pray. Well, the question for me was, well, what did Jesus pray? He probably prayed, you know, the Our Father in some way, but, you know, he was going out quite a bit to pray. And it dawned on me that he was probably praying the Psalms. When he's hanging on the cross, he cries out you know, the, the uh, I think it's the Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I, I often wonder, well, how can God forsake God? He's, he's the second person of the Trinity. How is, how is this possible? If you look at the footnote, that's the opening of Psalm 22. And so I, and Psalm 22 is, it starts with a lament. It goes on and talks about trusting in God. And then it talks about how God will be victorious. I would argue that he was praying the 22nd Psalm when he was, he was praying it and living it. These were his prayers. And so praying the Psalms, we can pray the Psalms and we are actually praying the prayers that Jesus would have prayed. He certainly would have prayed them in the synagogue because that's what they would have been praying. But those are Christ's words. That's as if he were the one that was actually praying it. So the Psalms are an important uh, uh, prayer device, if you will. There's a prayer technique called Lectio Divina. You might have heard of this. Um, reading the Bible slowly, looking at you know, various things. I, I like to think of it as the Holy Spirit has a highlighter. That as I'm reading through something, something will jump out at me. Maybe it's a scene, maybe it's a, a phrase, maybe it's a person, maybe it's just a word. That's something, it jumps out at you because God is trying to get you to focus on it, to pay attention to it. But that's a very simple way of looking at what Lexio Divina is, and it's a good way to read the Bible. The, uh, the Hail Mary is another uh, great uh, prayer, as you know. Um, I like to, uh, I, I, in the book I talk about this a lot, but uh, very simply, uh, so Jesus and Mary and the uh, first apostles go to a wedding at Cana. And Mary goes, and they come up to Mary, and I don't know why they went to Mary, but they go, the, the uh, people that are having the, the wedding, they go up to Mary and they say, we're out of wine. And I don't know if they were just saying, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Mary, without hesitation, looks at Jesus and says, they're out of wine. And, dear Lord, please forgive me for this characterization, but... It's almost like he says, Mom, why are you turning to me? You know, this isn't my time. This isn't when I'm supposed to do anything. Mary doesn't say a thing to him, turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Jesus can't say no to his mom. Pray to Mary. Get her on your side. Uh, Padre Pio, the, uh, the stig stigmata, the stigmatist who died in 1968, he used to refer to his rosary as his weapon because he felt that the intercession of Mary was that powerful. So go to Mary, pray the rosary. And then there's the Mass, which is the highest, the, these, um, this actually goes back to the Council of Trent, but it was reiterated in the um, uh, Second Vatican Council that the Mass is the highest form of prayer. And I'm going to talk more about that on Tuesday night. But it has every element of prayer in it. Um, petition, praise, adoration. It's got all of the different elements. Uh, even uh, after the homily, when Father usually sits and uh, quietly, there's time for uh, uh, meditation, if not even contemplation. And uh, anyway, so the, the Mass, of course, is the highest and, and best prayer that we can have. And it's a prayer that all of us have. Um, prayer practices, you need to get into a routine. You, if you say that you're going to pray and you pray only every once in a while, you're gonna forget it. It's very easy for things to get in the way. I get up every morning and, I'm not trying to blow my own horn, but I get up every morning and I, I, I pr say prayers and then I come to Mass because I know, <laughs> I know how it is. If I don't do that, I'm going to forget. Or I'm not going to make it around to Mass. There's Mass. I work in Clayton and St. Joseph's Parish has got Masses at noon. But, you know, there's always a phone call that comes in or something that comes up. And so you need to get into a routine that works so that you make sure that you pray. Um, I wanted to talk very briefly about fasting. Uh, I uh, had an opportunity to talk to um, 
Father Burkamper, for those of us, for those of you who are watching, Father Burkamper is a former associate pastor here, and we were talking about Lent and fasting during Lent. And I asked him, I said, well, you know, is, can't you look at dieting kind of as a form of fasting? Because, you know, people diet all the time, but they have a hard time fasting. And some of us maybe need more to diet more, but we don't need to get into that here. Um, but anyway, so he, uh, he said, yes, but it's the motivation. So my point is, you know, we need to go in baby steps. And so maybe if you are trying to lose weight, offer it up. Go on a diet, look at it as a fast, and offer it up. Fasting makes your prayer physical. We are body-soul composites. You are not just a soul that is put into a physical body. In order to be a human being, you have to be both body and soul. And so if you fast, you are making your prayer physical. And I think that it brings more of the person into it. So I think it's very, very good. Um, praying to the saints. Like I said, I grew up in Texas, surrounded by uh, Southern Baptists. And they used to always say, why are you praying to the saints? And they looked at it as sort of worshiping the saints. And I wish I would have known more at the time, because I really didn't know how to, how to explain what we do. But, you know, there, there are different terms in Latin for prayer. There's dulia. And there is, um, it just slipped my mind and I didn't write it down. There, anyway, there are two Latin words for prayer. One of them talks about, you know, when you have somebody that you ask to pray for you, which is what we do with the saints. And then the other is uh, worship. And that's what you do with God. And so bringing the saints in, and St. James in his letter says that the fervent prayer of a righteous person is powerful. And if these people are in heaven, their prayer should be very powerful and very effective. So find a saint. If you don't have one, research them. Find somebody that is close, you know, that had a life that mirrors something of what you've had and, uh, and, and ask them for their prayers. Learn about them. Uh, learn how it is that you can improve your own life. There, there are some great stories out there about the, uh, about the, uh, uh, about saints. Uh, one last thing I wanted to talk about was chapel visits, dropping by the church to say hi to Jesus. So I, I mentioned that we lived in Austin, Texas, for a little while, and Father Charles Elmer was our pastor, and he was this very quiet, you know, uh, generous, loving man. Uh, horrible asthma. He had to sleep at night up in a, um, uh, uh, in a uh, recliner because if he laid down, he might not make it through the night. I didn't learn until I read his obituary. He died several years ago. I didn't learn until he, I read his obituary that he had fought in the Battle of the Bulge. And you never would have known that. This guy was just such a loving, generous person. And uh, anyway, one day we were... Um, there was something going on with a youth group or something. And he said, oh, I've got to go. And I said, well, where are you going? And he said, uh, well, I've got to go to a neighboring town. I have a meeting at 3, and it was like, you know, noon. And I said, well, wait a minute, that's only 45 minutes away. Being the smart teenager that I am, I knew everything. I said, that's only 45 minutes away. You don't have to rush off. He said, oh, no, there are several churches on the way. And I said, what does that have to do with anything? And he said, well, I stop at every church and go and say hi. I said, why would you do that? He said, I just want to make sure that when the day of the resurrection comes, Jesus knows who I am. <laughs> it's always stuck with me. I thought, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. So take the time when you have a chance just to stop in and say hi to Jesus. He's waiting for us in the tabernacle. He's just waiting for you to come by and say hi. Just go by and say hi. Maybe make an act of spiritual communion. Uh, but, but pray. So tonight, I gave you the reason for writing the book, the background. We talked about prayer. Tuesday night, we're going to move into living your faith. What does it mean to be holy? Because God called us to be holy. What does that mean? And how do we live that? <clears throat> and we're also going to talk about sacrifice. Jesus, uh, and again, Lord, please don't 
turn away. Um, Jesus was bad at marketing. He said, come follow me, and he went to the cross. What was he thinking? That was sort of what Peter said at um, Caesarea Philippi. He said, no, 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 don't say that. But Jesus was very emphatic. He said, get behind me, Satan. So sacrifice is central to our, uh, our vocation as Christians. And so we're going to talk about that as well. Anyway, thank you very much for coming. Thank you for those who, who watched. I, I need to say a special thank you. Celia Donio is my technical expert over here who's helping me. Um, uh, I've got Chris Cummins back in the back. Um, Chris uh, is uh, working all the, uh, all the buttons and things that I have no idea. Katie Hall, who I don't think is here tonight, is my editor that has been so helpful. She was very, very encouraging. Uh, Bob Malloway, Bob is, the, is uh, recording this for me. Um, let me oh, and I, I want to thank Father Stanger for uh, letting me come up and talk. He had reservations, but we finally prevailed. Anyway, thank you very much, and I hope to see you Tuesday night. God bless.